This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Gordon Fine, CFO of Insight Enterprises, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 491. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Arthur Levine of Census Healthcare. Besides helping Census rebound from a sizable sales obstacle back in 2014, Levine discusses the company's successful 2016 IPO and his entrepreneurial philosophy that subscribes to the notion that less bureaucracy allows new technologies to be more quickly developed at a lower cost when compared to acquiring new technologies. Our discussion with CFO Arthur Levine begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Arthur Levine, CFO at Census Healthcare. Census Healthcare is a medical device company specializing in non-invasive treatments for oncological and non-oncological conditions. Arthur, welcome. Thanks, Jack. As always, Arthur, we'd like to begin by asking our guests to look backwards for us and sharing with us some of the experiences they feel that prepared them for a finance leadership role. When I ask you that question, what comes to mind for you? Well, I spent the first part of my career almost 
almost 10 years at Ernst & Young, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, in three cities, in three countries, uh, including New York, Milan, Italy, and Tel Aviv, Israel. So, you know, that kept things interesting for 10 years. Uh, I worked with uh, various industries and companies of all sizes, some of them public, some private. Uh, in New York, most of my clients were large public companies. And in Italy, uh, my clients were mainly uh, Italian subsidiaries of U.S. companies. Uh, and in Israel, uh, I was the SEC desk dealing with many Israeli companies um, that were in the process of going public in the U.S. Uh, or had already completed their IPO uh, and dealing with the ongoing SEC reporting requirements. Uh, I would say this experience at EMOI really gave me the foundation upon which um, all of my other experience was, you know, was added. Was it always healthcare? It looks like you, you kind of cut your teeth early there, but was it always well, healthcare related? No. Well, since I left DNY, uh, I've worked for six companies, five of which were public. Uh, of those companies, uh, the census is the second healthcare company. And, you know, I'm one who says that uh, a good CFO can, can work across industries and can, can transfer the skills uh, to virtually any other company in any other industry. Um, so I, you know, three of the companies were public when I joined them. Uh, two others I took public, uh, including Census, uh, where I've been working for the last five years. Uh, and each company... You know, I've applied some of what I learned at the previous companies and, and also at EY. Uh, an example would be the uh, IPO experience and M&A experience, which I've applied. Uh, the M&A experience, probably almost every company I've worked at, and the IPO experience uh, in the last two companies. Um, and after having gone through the IPO process at my previous company, um, I, was, I was able to anticipate types of issues that would arise and, and complete the IPO census uh, very efficiently. In fact, the census IPO was completed in less than six months from the time that we engaged the investment bankers. And how long had you been there when you uh, took it public? Uh, I joined census in uh, August 2014, and uh, we completed the, uh, the IPO in June 2016. Uh, so we started the IPO in the beginning of two 2016, which was about a year and a half after uh, I joined the company. So I, we want to find out about Census and the types of offerings it has today. But first, I, I would love to just go back to that uh, that piece, that period before the IPO. And you arrive, you, you, you know the drill. You look at the resources, the team you have in place. Can you just share with us what, uh, if you can recall, what your uh, sort of your prior priorities were? Uh, on the eve of it going public, what did you have to get done? What was it that uh, uh, remained top of mind for that period? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go back to the beginning uh, rather than the eve of going public because I think it's important uh, to understand the background. Uh, when I stepped into my role uh, at Census Healthcare in uh, August 2014, uh, the company only had 19 employees. Now we're at almost 50 employees. Uh, and immediately after joining Census, I had, a, I had to address um, a significant business challenge, which was uh, <clears throat> following the company's significant growth from its inception through 2013, uh, the company in, entered into a period of uncertainty. And that period of uncertainty was related to uh, 
the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is more commonly known as CMS, um, starting a review of the, of the insurance reimbursement uh, for our technology, it's called superficial radiation therapy, as well as the reimbursement for other uh, uh, treatment modalities. Uh, and during this review, the, um, the reimbursement levels became uncertain, uh, as the CMS was also at that time dealing with the uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And all of that uncertainty had a significant impact on the sales of census uh, for the remainder of 2014, because uh, basically all of our prospects were putting their purchases on hold pending the outcome of the, um, of the reimbursement decision by uh, CMS. So during this period, um, in order to minimize the amount of cash that the company was burning, the company was burning a significant, a significant amount of cash, um, management um, had to decide uh, how to make some difficult decisions, including significantly reducing the sales force and strictly limiting other expenditures uh, to those that would position the company uh, best uh, going forward uh, when the uncertainty went away. So you know, we, we cut back sales and marketing significantly because you know, anything we spent on sales and marketing really wasn't going to help the company at that time. However, we continued to invest very significantly uh, in R&D and in particular our next generation product called Pavilion. Um, and one other thing during that period, we continued to invest in international sales because uh, those were not uh, affected by the uncertainty and reimbursement in the U.S. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, at the end of 2014, uh, the uncertainty went away and our actual reimbursement rates, for the, re the reimbursement for our products uh, was not cut. Uh, and as a result, uh, the sales recovered in 2015 uh, after the, uh, the uncertainty was lifted. Um, we had a great year in 2015. Our uh, revenue was up 77%. Our EBITDA went from uh, negative, over 3 million negative in 2014 to uh, a small positive amount in 2015. And um, however, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't uh, completely swing in the opposite direction. We were still cautious in 2015 about increasing our, our spending, and only after it was really clear that the uncertainty uh, had passed, um, then I gave my full support to uh, reinstating the sales force uh, that had been cut back in 2014. So uh, toward the end of 2015, um, you know, with the big turnaround in results, uh, at that time the census leadership decided to uh, pursue a public offering, and uh, we, were, we were pretty well positioned at that point. And, um, we um, worked with investment bankers and you know, analyzed the pros and cons of, of doing an IPO and decided that was the right, the right strategy for the company and, uh, and we pursued it. And um, we were actually one of the first IPOs to be completed in 2016 uh, and we were actually the only Florida-based company uh, to go public on a major exchange uh, in the year 2016. Yeah, congratulations. At the same time, kind of like you, that was a... Uh, it seems to me that was a tough one. Uh, you've done this a number of times. Success, but wow, that was a, would you do that again? Yeah. Well, I have done it again, and I've, and I've, I've taken two companies in a row public, and, uh, you know, if the opportunity arose, I suppose I would go, go for a third one. Um, it's, you know, I, I like the challenges uh, of, uh, of, 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 of turning companies around. I also, I also like to have periods where there's uh, stability and, uh, and uh, 
uh, a little less stress. So, and that's interesting because I don't think every finance leader is well suited to, to, to do what you do, uh, to do what uh, this company needed to get done in that amount of time. Let me ask, Arthur, so what exactly, what, what sets these types of offerings apart today? What does census have here exactly? Okay, well, the, the, I would say the overriding theme with our products is we want to, we want to offer treatment options that enhance the life of patients because they're less invasive, right, but also that are easier for physicians, right, and, uh, and also lower the cost uh, to the healthcare system. If we can do, if we can have products that achieve all three, I think we're always going to be successful. We address the patients, the physicians, and 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 the cost in the healthcare system. Now, to get a little more specific about our products, we have our our, our core product that um, uh, is is called superficial radiation therapy or SRT. Okay, and that's a non-invasive that enables us to treat uh, non-melanoma skin cancer in a non-invasive way with no cutting, no bleeding, no stitching, no anesthesia, and the same cure rate uh, as surgery. Uh, SRT also treats uh, a condition called keloids, and for those that are not familiar with keloids, they're benign uh, non-cancerous growths uh, that afflict primarily uh, people with darker skin color. Uh, it could be uh, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, Asians, those are the ones that are most affected by keloids. And, um, you know, sometimes they're considered cosmetic, but if you look at pictures of keloids, uh, it's clear that in many cases they're, they're not only cosmetic, but they also interfere with the function uh, of, of the person's uh, normal uh, daily life. Um, and we, we believe we're the only true uh, cure for keloids. Any other therapy... Uh, the recurrence rate for keloids is very high. Uh, we have a recent study that shows that uh, keloids treated uh, by surgery followed by uh, radiation with our device results in a recurrence rate of only 3%, which is, which is amazing because every other treatment for keloids had a much, much higher recurrence rate. Uh, the other major product uh, that I'm going to talk about is our uh, intraoperative radiation therapy device called the Sculptura, uh, which received FDA clearance uh, very recently in uh, February 2019. And this device applies very advanced technology uh, and has features including a robotic arm, uh, respiratory tracking, and beam sculpting. And uh, I'm not going to get into a complete explanation of all of these, but they're very advanced technology. And uh, this device has the potential to revolutionize uh, the oncology market and how many types of cancers are treated. And, and we believe the Sculptura uh, is significantly better than um, the other IRT devices that are currently on the market and, and it's going to compete very well against um, uh, uh, technologies such as high-dose rate brachytherapy and even the much more expensive uh, linear accelerators, which have been considered the gold standard for treating uh, some very serious cancers. One of the uh, aspects of your uh, story, which I thought was really interesting, was the fact that you had a, during the turnaround, it was a question of letting certain talent go, the sales folks, and then rebuilding that team again. Since the IPO, you're up to 50 employees, you mentioned. Right. 
Here we see uh, finance, the finance leader, sort of in lockstep with, with that sales function. Uh, understanding what the company could afford, what it needs now to grow, uh, I would imagine that's something you have studied so closely uh, in your time there. I'm wondering if you can shed any light on for us uh, about, you know, when, it, when you determine another sales hire is possible, what goes into determining that? Is there something you can share with us regarding that? Yeah, well, I'll go, I'll go back to what I was explaining previously in that, you know, there was so much uncertainty regarding the reimbursement um, when, we, when we basically cut our sales force in half. And the conclusion was that, you know, most of the salespeople, even if they were good salespeople, there was nothing they could do or virtually nothing that they could do to convince a customer to buy. And in that situation, you know, we concluded, even, you know, even in some cases where the, where the sales reps were, uh, um, you know, were, were, you know, had good talents, uh, there was no point in keeping them. Uh, when the uncertainty was lifted, uh, we started to bring sales reps back. Now, how, how quickly did we do it? You know, we did it in a, in a calculated way. We didn't want to just hire them all back in one day. We wanted to, we wanted to see how our sales were recovering. And, um, and we wanted to cover all of the, you know, the major metropolitan areas in the U.S. But, you know, we've been gradually adding to our sales force uh, since, um, let's say, the middle of 2015. And we're, we're still adding sales reps today, not as many as we added in, in, in 2016, 17, and 18. But uh, we're still hiring more sales reps as we, uh, as we continue to grow. Now, is there a metric or a measure? That you, that you look at? Yeah, yeah we, have, we, have, I mean, we have fairly high margin products. I mean, our, our margins have been uh, in the low to mid-60s. So, you know, the, the payback on a, I think this is getting to your question, the payback on a sales rep is actually fairly quick. And uh, I would say, you know, a sales rep in our company uh, pays for himself or herself uh, you know, after, after selling the uh, two to three devices in a year. Uh, it could be even two devices in a year. So it's, it's very quick, and then, you know, and then the rest of the sales reps do well for themselves, and they also do well for the company, and that's the, uh, you know, the luxury or the, uh, the benefit of having uh, high-margin products where uh, a significant amount of the incremental benefit drops to the bottom line. Is there, a, I'm wondering if there's a, uh, and, and, Perhaps not, but but uh, is there a non-financial metric that you're paying attention to these days? And maybe it even surprised you how a, a certain measurement unrelated to uh, the financials has begun to help you uh, as a finance leader. A- anything come to mind? Well, most of, most of the metrics um, that I pay attention to as a CFO are, are financially uh, related. However, some of the other metrics that, that I look at is um, – uh, customer satisfaction. I mean, we promise virtually 100% uptime uh, to our customers, and we deliver that. Uh, and with our technology, we can monitor um, not all, but a large part of our installed base remotely, and take care of a lot of problems remotely. And um, when we need to send a service engineer uh, to a site, we guarantee to have the service engineer at the site within two days. And we think that's huge, and we have, you know, we have very happy customers. And um, we also 
We also promise assistance to our customers in marketing when needed because we don't want to have customers that are unhappy because they have insufficient patients. Uh, that should not be the reason why um, the, uh, the customer is not happy because they don't have, they don't have enough patients to treat. It's our, it's our main function to provide marketing. And we, uh, however, when needed, we do provide that assistance. And, and the bottom line is happy customers are, are great references for prospects. And uh, their endorsement, I think, counts more than endorsement of, uh, of you know, either the CEO, VP of sales, or CFO, or anyone within the company. And just keep in mind that we're selling to doctors and healthcare organizations, and they rely on a reference from another doctor. In most cases, they will call other doctors that they know. So it's absolutely critical for us to have uh, have absolute satisfaction uh, within our customer base. When we return, CFO Arthur Levine shares a finance strategic moment. After this, so you've already uh, supplied us with a few uh, finance strategic moments, but I'm going to ask you for once more. And this might not be at census, or maybe it is. But along the way during your career, uh, did you uh, have a finance strategic moment that comes to mind when I when I ask you for one? <laughs> well, uh, I'll include one at census. I mean, I, I would say that at census it was really the realization that we are generally better off developing new technologies internally than acquiring them. And I can tell you that since our inception, you know, we've grown on average around 30% annually. And now that we're a public company, there's pressure to continue to maintain that type of growth rate. And but until now, it's, it's, it's been all organic growth. Uh, and as, as we scale and continue to grow, the CEO, the CTO, and I um, continue to evaluate many potential deals that get presented to us by investment bankers and other contacts. And I can tell you in the last couple of years, I've looked at many deals, and the conclusion was always that they were either too expensive, not the right fit uh, for, the, for the technology, or, or both. And... Um, you know, as an entrepreneurial company with virtually no bureaucracy, we can develop new technologies quickly uh, and at a much lower cost and, and much lower risk level than, than acquiring the technologies. And you know, I think we can also pivot and change the plans as quickly as needed. Uh, so bottom line is we end up with new technology um, without the risk of integrating an acquisition and, and Maybe a little more time, but not that much extra time compared to um, acquiring technology. So I wouldn't totally rule out an acquisition. However, uh, I think I've raised the bar on our management team uh, in terms of you know, acceptable price and, and fit uh, in order for us to really do it. And that was, you know, it took a little while. <laughs> we, were, we were probably more actively seeking acquisitions uh, a couple of years ago than we are today. So again, we're not, we're not ruling them out, but. I think it's got to be, it really has to be the right one. Okay, great, uh, great insight there. appreciate that. We're going to jump to our, uh, our mentoring round where I'll ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. We'd like to ask, what is exciting you now 
It seems like the IPO is behind you. You've got census on the right track. But to think over the whole arc of your career here, what is it about finance and business today that's exciting you? What excites me is that I, you know, I come to work every day with uh, a list of things I need to do, and uh, I never get through the list. And you know, every and every day, you know, at the end of the day, the list is uh, anywhere from a few more points to uh, you know, twice as long. So, you know, no two no two days <laughs> on the job are the same, and I, you know, and I like that. It keeps it really interesting. So it's, uh, you know, and there's, there's always at least one or two challenge, new challenges every day. That's what I like about being a, you know, a public company CFO. So, again, you've been, uh, this is, you've had m- multiple tours of duty as a CFO. We're trying to now ask you to look back and think about when you first took over the reins and became a CFO. What is it that you wish someone had told you at that point in time? If you looking back now, you think, oh, maybe I would have loved to told myself this. What anything come to mind? Let me turn that around a little and answer the question because I think you're sort of asking the question. Um, you know, what advice you would, would you offer to a first-time CFO and somebody contemplating you know, who's a controller or, or similar title contemplating uh, be a CFO sometime in the future? And my best advice would be to do as much as you can before you have the CFO title. Right. And, you know, if you're a controller, don't only be a controller. Seek out, seek out more and more. And uh, you know, really, really at any level within the finance organization or in, or in any in, or in any area within the company, always try to always try to do your next job up the up the chain before you're formally promoted to it. And I think that will help because if you know if you start doing it on day one, you know you're gonna, you're going to make some mistakes and uh, could could make a critical mistake. So. Tell us about that controller. I'm wondering about an example. What are you What are you recommending that they do? Go Go get involved in an M and A uh, analysis uh, for a yeah. future deal, perhaps. Is that I mean, yeah. what, what would be an example of what you're suggesting? It could be getting involved in M and A analysis. It could be getting involved in, in operations, um, getting involved in um, strategic planning. You know, anything anything outside the you know the, the closing the day-to-day accounting and closing the books. Do you have a personal habit or a routine you believe has contributed to your professional success? Do you get into the office early? Do you leave late? Do you? Is there some part of your day that you use in, in a way that you're able to get information quickly? I, you know, something that shows how you thought out your day. Yeah, well, I mean, un- unfortunately, I have a difficult commute because uh, I have I probably live the furthest from the office uh, compared to all the other people I work here. But uh, you know, I turn I turn it into an advantage because I come in before everyone else and usually leave after everyone else, and I have uh, quiet time for probably at least a half an hour to an hour in the morning, and at least a half an hour to an hour in the afternoon with no distractions. And I try to use that time to tackle some of the more difficult uh, uh, tasks, um, you know, where I need total concentration. Arthur, I know that uh, Census is located down in southern Florida, and you've been down there for a good part, a portion of your career you've built down there. Yes. Um, so I'm thinking of you on the uh, the long commute. I, I'm not feeling all that sorry for you. You're not getting snow on the highway at least. 
But tell us about that region, uh, something about that region, how you've been successful there. Okay. Well, I don't want to take credit for being a founder of the company because I'm not one of the founders. I'm, act- I'm, actually, the only, I'm actually the only member of the executive team that's not a founder. Uh, so we have, we have a very strong executive team, and I think my CEO says, uh, calculates that they have over 130 years of, uh, of uh, medical device company experience with some of the you know, best-known names in medical devices. And, you know, we have, we have the luxury of being able to, you know, we all, all, the, all the executives know the right way to do everything. We have the luxury of deciding when to apply the right way and when we can be a little more entrepreneurial about how, about how we operate. So we have a we have a great executive team. And as far as why we're uh, why we're in Florida, you know, answer with why not? It's uh, got beautiful weather this time of year. It's got the nicest weather in the country, and um, we're not actually manufacturing anything here. So we could probably have been, probably be located anywhere else in the country. Uh, how how we how we manage to get talent in Florida? You know, some people say it's you know you know it's it's a challenge to find the right people. Uh, in Florida, particularly South Florida, where we're located, and uh, I don't agree with that. We've actually managed to hire some very good people, and uh, one is and keep those people uh, because we have a great work environment here. Once people start working here, they, they never want to leave. And uh, one other thing that we do is we don't necessarily always look for people that have a long history or a long track record. In their functional area. Uh, on the other hand, we like we like to hire um, much less experienced people, but who are highly intelligent and have huge potential. And that's worked really well for us. Some of our best people now are people that have uh, uh, were hired in, you know, with al- almost no experience in their field, but were, were mentored by uh, either me or one of the other executives, and, and, and really developed well and moved, and moved ahead. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, move to the next question, but I, I do want to just, I always ask about geography, and it's clear that you built your professional network uh, down there in Florida after, uh, I think, your, your, you know, four or a number of different companies uh, that you, you've been with down there. And uh, so uh, at, at this day may never come, but five years into the future or whenever, uh, you get a call from a recruiter, and they've got this wonderful opportunity in Chicago. Are you going to uh, think about that? You know, I learned a long time ago to never say never, but uh, uh, I do take calls from recruiters because I think it's a give-and-take relationship, and, you know, I, I got most others have been on both sides of the fence, and I like to help recruiters find the right person, even if I'm not interested in the position. You know, relocation, I've got it. 
several times. And in fact, I, I lived in Boston for eight years um, before moving to Florida. Not originally from Boston, originally from New York. And in between, um, I've lived in, uh, in Italy and in Israel. So I've lived in many places. So at this point, uh, I think it's unlikely that I would relocate. But like I said, you know, never say that. Never, never say never. <laughs> jump to our final question. I'm just being aware of time. I promised you 30 minutes and I'm, uh, uh, I'm already over. So our final question, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? My priorities um, you know, for census are to, are to continue to uh, maintain the growth trajectory that the uh, company has had in its first um, nine years since the company was founded in 2010 and started operating in 2011. So it's been, been operating about eight years now. And as the company, as the company you know, continues to grow, the numbers get larger and the, uh, unfortunately, the expectations of uh, Wall Street don't, don't go down. They, you know, so, you know, in the short term, I need to, uh, I need to manage the expectations every quarter, but in the longer term, I need to work with the CEO to, uh, manage where the company is going to be, you know, a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky in a, uh, in, a, in a constantly evolving environment like ours. Um, I mean, we have our core product, which is going to continue to be uh, uh, the, the core product. And we, uh, we continue to introduce new technology and um, you know, consider consider acquisitions, consider offers to distribute products of other companies. And uh, so we, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a balancing act of, of you know, balancing the short-term and long-term and all of the other considerations. And uh, I think keeping the eye on, keeping the, eye on the uh, overall objective. And, you know, as the CFO, I think you're, you're in a unique position because you have access to all of the information. And you know, the other executives have access to you know, their, their particular areas. And you know, nothing negative about this comment, but each, each of the other executives tend to prioritize based on you know, what's, what they're dealing with. And I think the CFO, and the analogy I make is that the CFO is like the, uh, like the conductor in an orchestra where you've got all the, all the parts that everyone's playing. And you have to, you have to watch what's going on, and you know, and, and balance it all, and make sure everyone's uh, marching in the same direction. And that's that's the that's the big challenge of the CFO uh, to, uh, to keep everyone in the same. Arthur Levine, thank you for joining us on CFO Thank you, Jeff. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. 
Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.